Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things. For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. All right, we're going to read from Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and know me, known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high, I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? I ascend into heaven. If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as a day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts, you covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Psalm 139. This is the word of the Lord. What an awesome psalm. And I, I, I just love, <laughs> this is one of those popular ones that uh, maybe not a lot of people read the whole thing through. And so they're just like, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Then you get to the part where it's like, I hate them, Lord, with a perfect hatred. And everyone starts going from amen to like, oh, okay. Um, let's go back through and walk through this incredible chapter of scripture. And we want to do that this morning. Under the heading of, of this title, so I, I, I spent a lot of time thinking, you know, about a creative title for this message today, and, and I landed on this. The title of the message this morning is God and You. God and You. So if you'd like to take notes, you can go ahead and write that down simply, or maybe you can make it more personal. You know, God and me, all right? But God and You. Uh, let's begin with a question this morning. I want you to think back, uh, whether it, it was something more recent or something in your past. Here's the question. When was the last time that you had to have a DTR? A DTR. Now, most heads in the room are kind of squinting, going, did I miss something? What's a DTR? Have you ever heard of a DTR? What is a DTR? A DTR is a define the relationship conversation. 
Okay, typically DTRs happen in a critical point of a relationship where one person is looking for some clarity about what's going on here. We need to have a DTR. All right, now you say we're just friends, okay? RIP to Bismarcky, by the way. All right, you say we're just a friend. Anyway, um, sincerely, passed away this week. Um, it's not in my notes at all, but um, a DTR, okay? A conversation that occurs at a critical point in a relationship where one party or both needs some clarity about the nature of the relationship. That's the goal of a DTR. What's going on here? Um, I, I can't tell you the last time I initiated a DTR, but I can tell you the last time Brittany, my wife, initiated a DTR. Uh, and this is when she met uh, Pastor Andrew at 18 years old. And I was all but head, head over heels for her. Um, and it was just getting to know her, but was on a fast track. You know, like, let's like, be my wife, maybe, you know? And she gave me, like, a nice Julio you know, stiff arm, okay? She gave me some nice, it's a football player. She gave me some nice space and said, hey, we, we need to have a conversation about this. You know, I, I you know, I'm, I'm, she said, you know, I'm definitely interested, too. Um, <laughs> but, but it's moving a little fast. And so I got, you know, as it's been commonly referred to, I got friend-zoned, okay, by my now wife back then. Never forget, a traumatic, a traumatic moment. Well, I guess it was, I got, it's, been, it's called, in the church, it's brother in Christ zoned, right? Like, brother and sister in Jesus. She didn't actually say that, but um, it, it's healthy. You know, DTR conversations are, are important to clarify the nature of a relationship. Relationships should have some sense of definition. What is this? Um, what's the goal of this? What's the purpose of this? Where's this headed? Now, I think these are important to have not just in a romantic context, but it's also important to have DTRs in everyday life, uh, just for, for, for the regular day-to-day -day relationships we have. For example, I had a DTR this week with AT&T. Okay, you ever had a DTR with your service? I was like, we got to define something here, okay? Customer, all right? Provider. Be telling me over the phone how to fix my thing? Like, no, you come. Okay, sorry. Anyway. <laughs> They're like, sir, we can see you from Boca. We'll send someone on, on the way immediately. Um, my wife and I, I feel like on a daily basis, have DTRs with our kids. We got we to remind them sometimes. We got to define this thing, okay? We're the parent, all right? You're the child, okay? We're in charge, and you're not, okay? And so it's, it's not working yet, but... Um, Still healthy, still important. Now, DTR, define the relationship. When's the last time that you had one? Well, here in Psalm 139, David is bringing definition to his relationship with God. He's defining, as we said, the idea of God and you. Listen, of all the relationships in your life, your relationship with God should be the most defined, sure, and clear. There shouldn't be any question marks on either end as to who you are to God and who God is to you. I wonder if you've ever had a DTR about your relationship with God. I wonder if maybe that's been on the back burner and you've been kind of living under assumptions rather than definitions. 
rather than allowing God's word to inform who he is to you and who you are to him. Well, David is giving us an example of the healthiest way to do that here in Psalm 139. But it's really unique how he gives the definition. It's unique kind of the aspect of the relationship that he defines. Notice the title is God and you. You know, a lot of our spiritual conversations as it pertains to our relationship with God, I think, tend to be largely centered around not God and me, but me and God. And we, we tend to think mostly, and, and, and I think um, almost only too often, about our end of the bargain. What I need to do, how I should live, how I should honor, obey, and relate to the Lord. And let me say, rightly so. Okay? We should be mindful and conscious and aware of how God has called us to relate to him. But never at the expense of how he relates to us. Of knowing not just who I am to him, or rather who he is to me, but also who I am to him. Um, there, there could be a lack of reflection in, in terms of how God relates to his people. And that's what we see David doing here in this passage. He is bringing a, a DTR to this specific uh, theme that I just referenced, how God relates to his people. I wonder if you're able today to clearly and surely articulate how God relates to you. Define the relationship. How does God relate to you? Now, it's important to make a distinction here. Psalm 139 is not about how God relates to all people universally and generally. Certainly God is with all people in his omnipresence. Certainly God is aware of all people in his omniscience. Certainly God has fearfully and wonderfully made all people as the creator. And certainly we're going to see God loves all people as the one who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But Psalm 139 is not about that. Psalm 139 begins with, O Lord. That word, Lord, you'll see it in all caps. Some of your Bibles, it'll be minimized to be a bit smaller. It's inserted there. It's, it's described that way to communicate the covenant name of God as revealed to Moses, Yahweh. This is not just, you know, God in heaven kind of generally who's hopefully blessing America, this kind of being. This is a God who's known personally by his people. And this psalm is about how God relates specifically to his people and not just all people universally and generally. And I want to encourage you today that you don't have to just be someone whom God knows generally today. You don't have to just be someone who God uh, knows and loves and made generally. We're going to see here in this passage, there is nothing better than, than living a life that is known by God personally, that is connected to God intimately. And that's what God ultimately desires for you, for you to know him, for you to walk with him, for you to come into partnership with him. He, he's gone to such great lengths to, to make that possible. We know sin has separated us from God. But Jesus came to bridge that separation, to be for us the means by which we can be reconciled to God by taking our sin upon his own shoulders on that cross, paving the way for you to be forgiven and renewed and reconnected to God. And in that reconnection, there's some definition. There's some clarity about how God relates to you. And that's what David gets into in this passage. And that's really, I, I think, my goal now as I kind of go back through this and preach it. My hope and prayer is that the Holy Spirit would really illuminate these truths in your heart in such a way that you would leave more confident. 
more confident not just in what you know about God, but in the fact that God is connected and walking with you and knows you. And so let's look at these different things here in Psalm 139 that David speaks about, uh, these different ways in which God relates to his people. The first thing the scriptures say about God's relationship to his people, as David defines this relationship, is he tells us, number one, that God knows us perfectly. It's the first order of business here for David. For David, He knows you perfectly. And lest we be too familiar with some of these concepts, let's just... Pause and meditate on this for a second. God knows you. He knows you perfectly. David starts out here in verse 1 by saying simply, O Lord, here's what he says, you have searched me and known me. The knowledge that God has of his people. Now, a lot of us, we see this and we go, of course. Like, I went to VBS as a kid. I spent enough time in the church to know that God knows things. From what I understand, he knows all things. Yeah, and, you know, this is obviously true. This is called the omniscience of God in theology, that God is all-knowing. Uh, in simple terms, the omniscience of God means that God can't learn anything new. You know, you know, what's, you know what's never been said by God? God's never, never once has God ever said, oh, you know what I just thought of? I just thought of something. God's never said that. God, nothing, nothing has ever occurred to God. <laughs> something just occurred to me. Nope. Never. He's omniscient. Now, now, we know this, and it can almost make a concept like this fall flat. God knows all. Of course, they, he knows me. But that's not what David is communicating here. David is not just speaking of God's general knowledge. David is speaking of God's particular and relational knowledge that he has of his people. This word here, you have known me, again, it speaks of up, close, and personal relationship. Like, you might know, if you've come to church here, you might know that I have three children. You might even know them. You've seen them. There's Judah. There's Evelyn. There's Penny. But you don't know them the way that I know them as a father. I know them in a real close and personal way. Look at Jesus in John 10, 27. He said, my sheep hear my voice, and what? And I know them to be known by God in this way, and they follow me. Are you known by God in this way? Notice, um, notice the next verse, 1 Corinthians 8, 3. If anyone loves God, this one is known by him. So it's relational language. It, it's, it's partnership with God. It's being known by him in a personal and intimate way. You know, I think of even kind of on the opposite sense. Jesus tells us that there's coming a day, a sad day in the future, where many people will stand before him on this day of judgment and they will sadly be false assured of their relationship with God, maybe because it's based on things other than God has established as his basis. Things like, I grew up in church, I know about God, I know about the Bible, I know about the gospel, I went on missions trips and shared the gospel, you know, in Spanish even, you know. Like, I, I know these things, or, or I've done these things. Look at my, you know, like my report card. You know, it's kind of like the spiritual version of like closing your spiritual rings. That's what I've been thinking about lately with the Apple Watch. Got to close my rings, you know. And a lot of people try to close their rings for the Lord to get in, to make it. And Jesus says, there will be a lot of people that will come before me with this pretense of relationship that's not based on truth. And Jesus' response will be, depart from me. What does he say? For I never knew you. Now, 
Interesting to think of. How could God not know someone? How could Jesus not know someone? Isn't he the one who knew Nathaniel under the fig tree even before he called him or met him? This is, again, of relational language. The, the judgment that Jesus pronounces on those who will be separated from him for all of eternity is that of, I never knew you. And what a, what a great thing to know the opposite, that God says, come be known by me. If you're in me, I have searched you and I know you. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. Paul says, if anyone loves God, this one is known by him. When's the last time you sat in this reality before God? That as, as you're coming before him to try to know him, you're already known by him. That he knows you. John Piper says it pretty well this way. He said, deeper than knowing God is being known by God. What defines us as Christians is not, I would say, just that we have most profoundly come to know him. But here's what defines us, that God's taken note of us and made us his own. That's what defines us as God's people. We are known by him. Such beautiful language here, to be deeply known by God. Um, Jesus even expounded on this, right? Jesus said that God has even numbered the hairs on your head. It speaks of that intimate knowledge that he has of our very lives. And that's what Psalm 139 is unpacking. Not just that God knows us, but he knows us perfectly. There are, there are incredible implications to this when this really uh, connects with your spirit in a deep and meaningful way. That God is the only one who knows you perfectly. And I know we've all had to wrestle with someone not understanding us, even imperfectly, right? Someone not really knowing where I was coming from, knowing my motives, knowing my heart. But David expounds on this incredible truth that God knows us perfectly. He goes on to say this. He says, God knows. Here's how well he knows us. We're pretty well known by him as his people. He knows our sitting down and our rising up. Now, that can sound like a Catholic church service, or it can sound like even Solus Church, time to stand up, time to sit down, right? The, the language here of God knowing my sitting down and my rising up, it's not speaking of religious liturgy. It's speaking of poetry. This is a poetic way to say God knows my rhythms. He, he knows me as I go about my life, as I go about my day. He knows of my comings and my goings. I'm never hidden from his sight. He's watching my every step. He even, this is both comforting and intimidating, he understands my thoughts afar off. Now, basically what this is simply saying is God knows what you think before you think it. That's how well he knows you. Uh, this is certainly chalking off to his omniscience. He knows our thoughts afar off. This is also comforting because sometimes I'm like, God, I have a thought, but I just can't think it. You ever been there? It's somewhere in there. I'm trying to find it. No. Good thing you understand my thoughts because I don't, right? Now, this is pretty cool. God knows us this personally. He knows our thoughts even afar off. He comprehends our path and our lying down. That's what David says. You comprehend my path and my lying down. And I love this. And you are acquainted with all my ways. Now, there's, there's comfort even in this verse. You comprehend my path. That, that's good to know. Why? Because I don't always comprehend my own path. Anybody been there? You're like, uh, trying to figure out where I'm going, trying to pray about the next step. And then you read verses like Proverbs 20, 24, which says, if a man's steps are of the Lord, how then can he ever understand his way? And you're just like, what does that mean? What do I do? You know, and you can, you can kind of live in this sense of like, I don't understand where I'm going, but there's comfort in that. 
There's comfort. It's okay if you don't know what you're supposed to do in a year from now, two weeks from now, even tomorrow. Jesus said, don't worry about that. Just, just seek the Lord today. He, he, knows, he knows where you're headed. He's got you. He's your shepherd. He's your GPS. He'll route you. He comprehends your path and your lying down. Look at this. He's acquainted with all your ways. The thing that you're walking through, that thing that you're going through, no one understands it like the Lord. No one knows you and what you're facing like the Lord. He's acquainted with all that you're going through, all of your ways. I even like to think of it as like he's acquainted with all of my ways, like Andrew has ways too. Um, ways that like, you know, it's one thing to know me, like know about me from a distance. It's another thing to like know me and like know his, like that boy's got some ways, all right? Like my quirks, you got some quirks? Like husbands and wives, you know each other's ways. I think there's a, there's a verse, I think it's Psalm 100 that says that God made known his deeds to Israel, but his ways to Moses. Like that just speaks of close and personal relationship. Like you don't have to have a relationship with someone to know what they do. And what they've done, their deeds, we can know that about God in that way. But to really know someone is to know their quirks, to know their, their idiosyncrasies and their tendencies and the way that they chew funny and the way that they sneeze funny. You know, all those different things that make you who you are. God is acquainted with your ways. I love this, how personal his knowledge of us is. Psalm 139 verse 4 says, For there is not a word on my tongue, but, O Lord, you know it all together. It's no coincidence then that David is the one who prayed, God, may the words of my mouth be pleasing in your sight because there's never a word on my tongue that you're not aware of. There's some, some healthy fear of the Lord that that can produce in regards to what our words are doing. How, how, how are our words empowering and edifying or not? How are they destroying? There's, there's not a word on my tongue, though, that God... Misses. You know, this is encouraging for me to know that, the, you know what this also says? You have never missed God with a prayer. God's never had a missed call. You know what I'm saying? Sorry, bad cell reception up here. Gabriel was flying by as the call came, you know. Um, it's never happened. There's not a word on my tongue even in prayer that the Lord doesn't know and doesn't hear. There's, there's great comfort in that. The idea over and over and over again is that God perfectly knows you. He knows you like no one knows you. And here's David's response. He says, such knowledge that you have of me is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. David is like, it's amazing how much you know me, how well you know me. And this is really a great vision for what this truth should produce in our lives. It's one thing to go, yeah, God knows me. It's a whole other thing for that to transform how I start living. It's all another thing for me to go, such knowledge is too high for me. It's wonderful. It changes me. It affects me. Uh, th there are many implications. I was kind of thinking through this in my own life, thinking about how God and how perfectly he knows me. And, and going, okay, Lord, you know me like no one else. What should that translate to in my life? Here's just a few things that the knowledge of, of you, God's knowledge of you, should, should lead to in your life. First, it leads to this trust and this peace that God knows you better than even you know yourself. This is sometimes the hardest thing we fight against. Because we're used to knowing ourselves often better than anyone else. Maybe you've been a victim to this to some degree where people thought they knew things about you that just weren't true. They didn't know you. 
And this, you know, it's obviously a true thing to some extent. There's definitely times where other people know things about you that you don't. You need community for that because we all have blind spots. But at the end of the day, there's never something about me that God doesn't know. Now, are there things about me that I don't see? Absolutely. But there's, nothing, something, there's never something that God misses. This should produce in me this humility that says, God, you know me better than I know myself. And so I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that I don't condemn myself. Because even if my heart condemns me, you're greater than my heart and you know all things. God, I'm going to make sure that I don't give myself a pass. I need to, to hear what you have to say. So, so God's knowledge of me, it should produce that humility before him. It, it also should produce a peace that God understands when no one else does. And, you know, if you haven't learned this yet, like, it could be because you're young and you haven't had enough people not understand you. But this is a great lesson to grab on early when you start to go, nobody understands me like the Lord. And so it's not that you don't depend on the people that God puts around you, but you don't expect them to be who only God perfectly can be. And, and this, this will crush someone. Husbands, you're called to dwell with your wives with understandings. With understanding. And understandings. Okay. Wives, you don't need me to tell you, your husband cannot perfectly understand you, even though he's called to by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, only God perfectly understands us and knows us. There's something comforting in that. When no one else understands, we can trust that God does. And lastly, this should also imply the fact that God sees me when no one else does. God knows me better than myself. God understands me when no one else does. And God sees me when no one else does. A lot of times, you know, a lot of us, we can, we can live under this lie that we're unseen, and I'm not known. And it's like, what, what is this all about? Why am I so lonely? You can feel unseen. And if there's anyone who felt that way, it was probably David, who spent so much of his spiritual journey in forced isolation with no community. And everyone, the only people that were trying to see him were trying to kill him. And here he is going, Lord, you know me. You see me. And he's satisfied in that. Uh, there's something to that. There's something uh, to, to living under the knowledge that God sees you and that's all you care about? Like there's some, Jesus even taught that, didn't he? He's like, do what you do because God sees. Don't, don't do good things so other people praise you. Oh, I saw that. You're so holy and spiritual. No, he's like, do what you do for your Father in heaven. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Your Father who sees in secret will reward you. He sees you. So this is just the first truth. He, he establishes this. God knows you perfectly. He also says this. God surrounds you completely. He knows you. This speaks to his omniscience and his personal relational connection to you. But then he says that God is also omnipresent, but not just in a general theological way, but in a personal way. He surrounds you in his omnipresence completely. In other words, there's not a part of you, Christian, there's not a part of you that is not surrounded by God. God is surrounding you at every corner. David says this in verse 5. He says, you have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Finally, there's the scriptural basis for, Lord, we just pray for a nice hedge. They're flying God. We pray for a hedge around the plane, all right? Hedge of protection on the minivan, all right? Now, so those of you laughing probably grew up in church. You've heard this a lot, right? Like we're just praying for a hedge. Just 
a nice bushel of protection, okay? Maybe a clusia, all right, by Florida Boys Landscape. You know, just put all around me there. Now, now this, this is a, uh, I got you, Jordan. This, this is a, this is a, uh, this is a biblical concept that comes out of Israel's history to, to describe genuine protection. Uh, you know, back then, before the days of, of you know, your white picket fence and, and uh, whatever you prefer, your PVC fence, whatever it may be, um, one of the ways that a garden or, or, or a, um, a house was protected by, was by a thorny hedge. I mean, we still do that today. And that thorny hedge existed to keep predators out. And this is what David says about the Lord. He says, God, you surround me like that. Think about that. God is, the idea here is, he is your line of defense. This is just true. If you're in him, he is a hedge all around you. He surrounds you. Now, this means a few things. This means, number one, that you have an incredible defense system and you're protected. That's, you know, this is something we go over with our kids all the time. Um, if they're fearful or something, you know, we, we ease their fears by articulating to them the different lines of defense we have at the Lundy household. Try me, all right? Um, we, we, we give them security in knowing how they're protected, you know? Best, best thing of all, Cooper, our golden retriever, who is all bark, no bite, but it's a loud bark, okay? Which is, which is great, step one. Um, but, but regardless of any sort of human defense systems we have, what we want our kids to know and to trust in is that God is your ultimate defense. He's your hedge. He's your protection. He's the one that's carrying you, protecting you, and surrounding you. That, that's what this means. You've hedged me all around. Listen, this also, this also this doesn't just mean that God will protect you from harm. But think of that language of this thorn bush that keeps predators out, the idea of God being your hedge, and you need to hear this closely, this idea means this, that God is the one who surrounds you. Nothing will ever come to you that hasn't first gone through him. This is the story of Job, isn't it? Job, at some points, I'm sure, was going, God, where's the hedge? Didn't we pray for the little hedge? It feels like there's a... The hedge is dying. It feels like there's a, some middle schoolers have been cutting through it and making a big hole in it or something. There's a hedge. But, but God, where is it? And this is a, a truth that David is meditating on, something that Scripture will constantly communicate. Either God will protect you, but regardless, he will never allow anything to come into your life that he doesn't first see. He is aware of walk, what you're walking through. David is thinking about this. He's not just saying this because... You know, he's going on a road trip. He is literally running from harm, meditating on this. David goes on to say this, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Now, a lot of times we look at a verse like this and we think of the book of Jonah. And this is certainly applicable in that regard. Like, you know, if you flee down to Tarshish, God's still going to be there, okay? Also, I hate saying the word Tarshish, okay? Um, we already did the book of Jonah. Thank God I don't ever have to say Tarshish again. Okay, there it goes. Um, but... Uh, there, there's a truth to that, right? There's a truth that you can never outrun the presence of God. This is, this is true. But what David is saying here is not that I'm trying to flee from you. What he's saying is my life is in disarray, but what comfort to know that, that no matter how far life flings me all around, you're there. Where can I go from your, your spirit? What, what's happening, it might have knocked everything around me out of order. It might have caused chaos, but your presence is still here. 
your presence. Where can I flee from you? Uh, again, the omnipresence of God, that God is everywhere at all times. Now, this is not promoting pantheism, this idea that God is everything, but, but that God is everywhere at all times. But, but it's more than that, you know, because sometimes that can just be this, like, empty theology, like, God is everywhere. You know, trying to explain that to the kids is fun, you know. I'm trying to wrap their head around that. What, what David is saying here, though, is not just generally God is everywhere. He's saying God is everywhere with me. God is everywhere with me. Where can I go from your presence? And he even unpacks this. He says, even if I ascend into heaven, the place of life, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, in hell, behold, you are there. There is no high, there, there is no height like heaven to where God is absent, nor is there nor depth such as hell. We know Jesus himself, as he is in the grave, I'm sure he was meditating on this. You are there, God. You are with me. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. That, that's language to just say kind of the far, back then, the far beyond lands that we haven't reached yet. The uttermost parts of the sea. If I even leave the security of home, no matter where I go, God, you are with me. This has been a verse throughout the ages that has been a great comfort to refugees that have been forced away from their home to the uttermost parts of the earth to know that God is still with you even when you're wandering. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So God, wherever I go, you completely surround me. Uh, you know, it's one thing, again, to know this theologically. It's a whole other thing when you experience the reality of this, when you recognize that God is with you and his presence is felt by you with what you're walking through. David says this beautifully in these next few verses. He says, if I say, surely darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. He says, indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day with you. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Now, let's make a fact here. The darkness and the light are not both alike to us as people. And... and We've all felt this to some way. If you've experienced darkness, you know this. I mean, even with my kids, right? They prefer light over darkness. It's not like the light or the dark is the same to them. In fact, if it gets too dark, it's like, let's turn the lights on. And David is describing the human experience with darkness in life. Did you see what he said there in that verse? He says, if I say, surely darkness shall fall on me. He's t Have you ever felt this, by the way? David is being overwhelmed by darkness. Whether it's darkness as, as manifesting as the face of evil or it's the dark night of the soul. Whether it's the shadow of death itself, the dark shadow of death. We're talking about life in a fallen and broken world that has an enemy ruling and, and running amok. David says, there's times in my life where I am prone to be overwhelmed by the weight. Where I, am, where I am prone to lose it and become paralyzed and gripped by fear because I can't see anything. I can't see my, my own hand in front of my face. Some, sometimes we get here spiritually. Maybe you feel that way. You just feel overwhelmed by darkness. Notice David's salvation in that darkness. It's not that the circumstances go away and circumstantially the lights turn on. It's that the light shows up in the person of God. 
He says, if I say, surely darkness shall follow me, he says, because you're here, even the darkest night becomes bright. When you're here, even the darkest night becomes bright. Because God, there's darkness and light, they're alike to you. The good news of the gospel is that the darkness doesn't overcome the light. The light shines in the darkness. Um, This is what David says in Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation in the darkness. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? The next time that darkness is overwhelming you, remember that God completely surrounds you. God surrounds you more than that darkness does, and God is a light to illuminate that darkness. He's there to guide you in that darkness. He's there to be the light, even when, by the way, even when it keeps getting darker. Darker the light, or rather the darker the night, the brighter the light. And that's what God often wants to do in our dark times. He goes on to say, not only has God known me perfectly or surrounded me completely, here's another great truth about how God relates to you. He made you, created you fearfully. He created you fearfully. Verse 13, you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well, that my frame was not hidden from you when it was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. He says, your eyes saw my substance being yet formed. Back there to verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. David is looking at his own life, and he's tracing the thread back, not to some accident, not to some incident. He doesn't trace the source of his life to two people falling in love. That may have been the means of your existence, but the source of your life is God. He says, God is the one who created me. You formed me. In such beautiful language here, in my mother's womb. I want you to take a minute this morning and just want you to think about your mother. I want you to think about the fact that God formed you in your mother's womb. Whether you know your mother today or not, whether you can talk to her today or not, God is the source of your life. He created you. He formed you in your mother's womb. Um, What David is is reminding us of here is, listen closely, the sacred touch of God's fingerprint on humanity. That, That human beings are not some cosmic accident, some random evolutionary outcome. And it's not just Adam and Eve in the garden, but all of humanity exists because God wills for humanity to exist. And not just in a, you know, kind of like how he created everything else by speaking it, but God with creating humanity gets his hands dirty. He's involved forming the life of humanity, forming the life of man. He formed your life. So, so there's some theology here, right? There's some really good news here. Revelation 4.11 says, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, even your own life, and it's by God's will, this is God's will, that life exists and is created. This is the sacred touch 
of God's fingerprint on humanity, made in God's image. David looks at his own life. He traces the source of it back to God, who's there knitting him together in his mother's womb, giving us some major implications in theology about human life, does it not? Okay, what the Bible teaches about human life and your human life, specifically as it pertains to this passage, is that, listen, your life is sacred. Human life is sacred. There's many implications of this. Your gender, God made you that way. It's sacred. He made you who you are on purpose. We see that even in the beginning, that he distinguishes male, female. There's a sacred touch of God's fingerprint on gender. There's a sacred touch to race. Both, as the late Ravi Zacharias would say, both gender and race and sexuality, they're all sacred things that we don't violate. It's why racism of any form is evil and from hell. Because the, 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 the template of Scripture is God forms you with his own fingerprint to be who you are in his image. It's by his will that you exist. You're here because he wanted you to be here as you are. Now, we know there's a problem there with sin, of course. Some have described the image of God marred by sin as like the Mona Lisa covered in graffiti. This beautiful work of art that's been vandalized by sin, but nonetheless... Each person, despite race, ethnicity, gender, background, is equally of value, dignity, and worth because of the very image of God upon their lives. And of course, ultimately, what we say about this is that we as Christians, we firmly believe that all life is sacred. That all death, all removal of life should grieve our hearts despite how desensitized we can become in a society that watches the news all day long and sees people dying all day long. And so it's been well said that whether it's in the womb or in the tomb, we should grieve at the loss of life in this world. We should grieve and grieve and grieve and fight and fight and fight to preserve the unborn whose lives are removed in the womb because they bear the sacred image of God. And who are we to remove the life that God has designed and created and formed. And we should also grieve when we see the results of gun violence, when we see the results of, of war, when we see the results of, of poverty all around the world. We should be moved by death. Like Jesus was when Lazarus died, and the Bible says he weeps. He didn't just go, oh, he's going to come back, whatever. I'm going to raise him up. It's what I do. I'm Jesus. No, no, he, he, he's moved at the thought of death, because life is sacred. All life is sacred, because it's been formed by the very hand of God. That's, that's what David is unpacking. He's thinking about this. I, I love this. He takes it a step further. He says, not only did you create me as I am on purpose, but he says, you even fashioned my days as yet before there were any of them, is what he's saying here. You fashioned my days. Um, just such a beautiful thing, uh, way to think about the fact that, like, well, Maybe less beautiful, actually. <laughs> it gets more beautiful. You know, you know, Scripture teaches life is a vapor, right? Each of us, we have an expiration date. Um, there's an end we have. But in between that, there's a number of days that God has given us. What a cool thing to think about. That I, I'm, I'm a steward, just like I am with financial currency. I'm a steward as well with my time currency. 
It's a limited amount of it. What am I going to spend it on? God has created the number of my days. I love Psalm 90. God, teach us to number our days. <laughs> David prays this. He goes, God, so that I might gain a heart of wisdom. God, help me remember that I'm not immortal, that, that I'm not going to be here on earth forever without, I'm going to die. And it's better, Solomon says, to go into the house of mourning when someone dies because the living take it to heart and they go, what am I doing with my life? God's designed my days. Am I using it wisely, my time wisely? Lastly, we close with this, that God loves us greatly. God knows us perfectly. God surrounds us completely. God has made us fearfully and wonderfully. And, and you know, where this just gets the best, you know, ending here and cherry on top is this fact that with what he knows, he loves us greatly. David says, how precious also are your thoughts to me. Now, David here is speaking, the, the, the language here speaks of God's thoughts about David. Thoughts, your thoughts towards me. How precious are your thoughts towards me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand at Red Reef Beach. When I am awake, he says, I am still with you. David ends this reflection comforted by the fact that God loves him. God loves him. Uh, we know this Tim Keller quote because I use it every other week, but let's, let's look at it again, okay? Tim Keller says this in his book, The Meaning of Marriage. He says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. Nobody wants to settle for that. Like, oh, they love me. It's like, well, they love you because they don't really know you. Like, and maybe they, they should still love you, like, but that's superficial love, you know? It's not genuine love. It's like, oh, I like them. It's like, well, get to know them. Um, to be loved but not known, it's comforting, but it's superficial. It's not genuine. It's not the kind of love that we were created to experience. On the opposite hand, to be known but not loved, that's our greatest fear, is that someone does get to know me, they find out who I really am, and they were only loving me for my good qualities, my light side, and they weren't willing to love me through my dark side. That's our, that's our greatest fear, right? It's why we hide, isn't it? Because the fear of what people will do if they found out who we really are. By the way, which is just like them, broken in need of Jesus. But to be fully known and truly loved is, well, a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of our self-righteousness, and it fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. And that's what David says here. Isn't that beautiful? He starts with the fact that God fully knows him. And, and as comforting as that can be, that can also be intimidating. Because even just with what I know about me, I would feel, and I do feel often, disqualified and unworthy of love. Ever felt that way? Like, God, how can you know what you know? How can you know what I've done? How can you know my heart? Like, right now, the thoughts I think that only you see. How can you know those things and love me? Well, that's who God is. He greatly loves us, greater than even our sin. It's because of his great love, Paul says, because of his great love that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, he made us alive together with Christ. It's because of his great love. And so this is what it's like to be loved by God, not superficially, nor do we need to be afraid that if I'm honest with God about what's there or if I confess that or if 
I face up to that. God's going to reject me. God fully knows you, and this is what makes his love so great. He fully loves you in that. Fully loves you. And the language David uses is so, it's so beautiful um, because he says, not just like, because a lot of times we're like, yeah, God loves me. Like, Jesus loves me, this I know, okay? <laughs> the Bible and everyone else tells me so. It's like, sometimes that, that's where we can be with a, with a thought like this. It's like, I'm almost tempted to change the point. You know, he loves you greatly, like to like something else to make it more profound. Um, because the problem sometimes is like, we just are too familiar with this kind of love. They were like, of course God loves me. You know, he kind of has to. You know, he's love. Sorry, God, it's who you are. You know, gotta love me, you know. And look at, the, look at the understanding David has of God's love. David says, your thoughts toward me are precious. It's like, do you know God's love for you that way? Let, let me try to explain it this way. You know, we, we use this quote all the time from A.W. Tozer. You know, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. We always are hammering this, like theology matters. It's like when you hear God's name, you know, what comes into your mind it's the most important thing about you. It's such a great question. What about this question? What comes into God's mind when he thinks about you? When he hears your name? What sort of thoughts do you project him on having? Is it like, uh, you know, kind of Napoleon Dynamite syndrome? Like, just over me, frustrated with me. Maybe, maybe for you, you have projected upon God the treatment you've experienced from earthly authority, earthly parents, earthly fathers, earthly mothers. So people that were supposed to love you, they, you, you trust that they loved you, but you've projected their broken love on God's love. So what comes into God's mind when he thinks about you? With all that he knows, David says he has precious thoughts towards his people. Like, listen, my kids are there's things I can think about them that are not as precious, okay? But because I'm their father, even me being evil, Jesus says, if you give me the name of one of my children, immediately it's thoughts of love. It's thoughts of affection. It's thoughts of protection. It's thoughts of care and concern. This is who God is. God says this in Jeremiah 29, 11. You've never heard this verse before. Check this out. For I know... I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord. I know the thoughts... And what I know is higher than what you know. Don't assume you know what God thinks about you. Like in some sense, maybe you, maybe you're like, you think too high of yourself. You're like, man, yeah, God loves me. Of course he does. When God hears my name, he's like, boom, they're awesome, okay? And maybe there needs to be some humility to go, God, maybe you are thinking like I need to repent. Maybe I, I haven't come to you. I haven't turned from my sin. But to know ultimately that, God, when you think about me, you know what you think about me. I can trust in what you know. Thoughts of peace. Ultimately, here's God's heart, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. This is what God knows about us. This is how God surrounds us. This is how God's made us. And this is how God loves us. Um, this is how God relates to his people. This is how God relates to you. And so my hope for you is that you don't leave here this morning without defining, personalizing, rather, this definition of God in you. That, that you sit in this and you believe this in a real way. Um, 
I'll invite the band to come out. We're going to close with, with a moment of reflection here. Uh, I, want, I want to close with, with these last verses that, that David reads. It takes such an, uh, a wicked turn. I don't mean that like in a Boston way. I mean that in like a Hebrew actual scripture way. It takes a wicked turn. Check it out. He says, he goes, from the, he goes from God, you love me, you know me, you created me, you surround me. Oh, that you would slay the wicked. Notice that that lyric wasn't in the song we sang. You know, it's like, Lord, would you slay the wicked? You know, it's like, can we add that? No? Okay, good. David's, look, David, look at what, it, look at what this produces in David's life. David sits on who God is to him, and all of a sudden, David's like free to just be human and honest. He's like, God, I want you to kill my enemies. I want them to depart from me, these bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you. Your enemies take your name in vain. So David's like pointing at them, right? Because David's like known and loved by the Lord. He's like, God, whatever. I'm just going to be real. Kill them. That's what he says. Take them out. They speak against you. They take your name in vain. And then David says this. God, I, I hate them who hate you. I loathe those who rise up against you. I hate the wicked. Now, I don't know if David's justifying here. With a perfect hatred. It's not a sinful hatred. It's a perfect hatred. It's an appropriate hatred is the idea there. I count them my enemies. Now, now David's doing this, right, because God knows him. God's loved him. But then all of a sudden, as he's thinking about it, he's going, you know me. Hold on. You love me. You know me. So David says, search me, oh God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. Look at what he says here. Isn't this beautiful? And, and see if I'm the wicked one. See if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. David begins with saying, God, slay the wicked. And as he's saying that comfortably before this God who knows and loves him, God's knowledge and love for him makes him start to go, wait, God, you even know the wickedness in me. So let me pull my finger back from a second. And let me trust that you know me better than I know myself. And you see what I don't see. And God, I'm open. I'm open because you know me. I'm open because you're with me. I'm open because you made me and not me. And God, I'm open because I know you love me. No matter what you find isn't going to change what you love about me. So God, show me the wickedness in me. God, sh God I'm so consumed with them. And you're saying to me, no, 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 what about you? I know you. David says, show me, God, and, and lead me. Lead me in the way everlasting. This is Christian faith. Honesty before God. Honesty, humanity before him. That leads to humility before him as well, saying, Lord, I have security through the gospel to just be who I am before you and trust that you're going to take me where I need to go.